Good evening. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. Pleased to be here with all of you uh, for tonight's topic, students, teachers, and free speech. It couldn't be a more pressing issue among the many things that we have to talk about. And I'm really excited to see so many friends and new faces joining us for this evening's conversation. A couple of quick thoughts and introductions for the evening before we jump into our conversation. Uh, tonight's event is held in honor, if you will, of the pending Bill of Rights Day, which is, as all of you assuredly know, this coming Thursday, Thursday, December 15th. Uh, Bill of Rights Day is one of my favorite constitutional holidays, one of my favorite days of the year. I have a special spot in my heart for Constitution Day in September uh, with uh, Bill of Rights Day a close second for it. So hopefully all of you are having exciting programming planned in your classes over the coming week and fun conversations lined up to celebrate uh, what I think is among the many exciting holidays of this month. Actually, if you have great ideas for how you're going to tackle Bill of Rights Day in your classroom, throw them in the chat. We'd love to hear it, see some of the ways that you're going to be talking to your students about these ideas. So as usual, for those of you who've joined us for many previous conversations, or for those of you new tonight, we look to make this as much as possible a conversation uh, among each of you joining us in the conversation, as well as among uh, you and our presenters. So uh, what we ask you to do, please do a couple of things for us. One, do comment frequently in the chat. We'll take your questions, thread those throughout the evening as an opportunity to engage with our wonderful panel of experts in the conversation, but also engage with the ideas and conversations you hear from each other, all with the spirit of civil discourse. Uh, so building off of that notion of saying, how do we thoughtfully engage, raise questions, be respectful, think about the ways in which what each of us brings to the table can really build off of what we're trying to accomplish. The second thing that I do want to ask of you, uh, if you are not registered or you're not showing up in the Zoom participant list as what your name is from how you registered for the event in the first place, please hover your over your name and click where it says rename and change it to be uh, whatever name you happen to register under for the event. That helps us afterwards as we're putting together professional development certificates, make sure everyone gets the one matched up with their name. It saves us a lot of trouble sorting things out on the back end. With that, I wanted to jump right in, go right into the conversation, introduce our experts and get to the conversation. Tonight, I'm thrilled to be joined by a fantastic crew of experts with many years of constitutional expertise to talk a little bit about this topic, students, teachers, and free speech. What we're going to do is spend some time taking a look at the history of the way in which the court has engaged conversations throughout American history around how free speech might apply to schools. So taking some of the earliest instances of that, taking a look at some of the very famous cases many of you frequently teach from uh, the Tinker case in the early years all the way up through the more, uh, the recent Mahanoy case, and then talk a little bit about some of the unique challenges you all face around speech in the classroom as teachers. Then I'm very excited to have um, two of our panelists tonight sharing a conversation with all of you about the new Constitution Explained series. I don't want to give away too much because this is a fantastic resource, and I think many of you will find this easily and readily applicable to your classrooms. With that then, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our panelists for tonight's conversation. Uh, joining us is Tommy Berry, a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for the Constitutional Studies and the managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation and clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Tommy, thanks so much for joining us. Joining Tommy tonight, we have Linda R. Monk, J.D., a constitutional scholar and award-winning author. 
A graduate of Harvard Law School, she has twice won the American Bar Association's Silver Gavel Award, its highest honor for media about the law. Her books on the Constitution include The Bill of Rights, A User's Guide, and The Words We Live By. Her most recent project is The Constitution Explained, a series of 35 short-form videos co-produced by iCivics and the Center for Civic Education. Welcome, Linda. And finally, joining us tonight, longtime friend of Sphere and what we've been trying to do in working with teachers and a fantastic scholar in her own right, we have Julie Silverbrooks, who's the Senior Director of Partnerships and Constitutional Scholar in Residence at iCivics. Previously, Julie served as Executive Director of the Constitutional Sources Project, Consource, in Washington, D.C. from 2012 to 2020. She regularly writes and lectures on the United States Constitution and its history and the importance of civic education to the health of the American Republic. Julie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. To get us started on the conversation, what I wanted to do is uh, pose our first question to Linda. And Linda, you and I've talked about this a little bit. I think a great thing to do is to talk a little bit about the history of how it got to be the case that the court, the Supreme Court, started to take a look at speech questions as it relates to schools. Some interesting things there and some interesting ways. So with that, why don't I turn it over to you to give us a little bit of that background. Uh, and as always, I want to encourage everyone here joining us again throw those questions in the chat. We'll bring them into our conversation soon. Uh, but Linda, with that, please take us away. Thanks so much, Alan. First of all, I'd like to say thank you to all the educators who have taken time out of their busy schedules this year, uh, this time of the year, the busiest, end of semester, holiday season busiest. Um, and I, I love Bill of Rights Day. Uh, celebrating when Virginia ratified the Bill of Rights and, and made it official. Uh, but of the calendar year, December 15th is kind of hard to squeeze in. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedules tonight. Some of the introduction will probably be familiar with you, but we want to uh, set the table for everybody and we really encourage your questions. So with that, let's take a look at how the court began to apply uh, specifically the freedom of expression clause to or clauses to the school setting. Uh, first of all, let's start with the First Amendment itself. What are this, the first word? Congress. So from right there, you're realizing that the Supreme Court is probably not going to apply it to the states for a long time. Um, so it didn't apply to schools, but it didn't apply to a lot of Americans uh, in terms of their um, protection from state and local laws. Now, starting in the 19-teens, 1920s, the Supreme Court using the 14th Amendment, which gives it power, um, get, applies the Constitution to the states, basically, uh, begins to hold state and local governments, and that's where schools tend to reside, uh, responsible for enforcing the First Amendment in some way. And really, the first case where the Supreme Court applies freedom of expression within the schoolhouse gate, we'll see that phrase come later, is what are known as the flag salute cases that happened right around World War II and during World War II. And um, perhaps we could go to the slide now, Alan. Um, <clears throat> if we're having difficulty with that, I'll just keep talking. Oh, there we go. As you're no doubt familiar, um, at, at one point, the Supreme Court said 
because the Jehovah's Witnesses as a denomination bring so many of the First Amendment cases, both religion and freedom of expression before the Supreme Court. And the court, the, the Supreme Court will note that. And so um, one of the points that it makes is Jehovah's Witnesses are a small denomination. Uh, they can be very unpopular during World War II era. They were unpopular because they refused to allow their children, and their children, of course, were reflecting their own beliefs, to uh, recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, you may know that the Pledge of Allegiance started in 1892. Uh, it's become kind of a, uh, well, at that time, it was mandatory, where students had to recite the Pledge of Allegiance to stay in classes. And the the Jehovah's Witness children at issue here were suspended. The first case is um, the Gabitis case in 1940. It was uh, ruled on in 1940. And that was, remember World War II, it already started in Europe uh, and the US was getting closer and closer to approaching wartime. You'll notice the photo on the left most people don't recognize, they see that photo and they automatically think Nazi Germany. Well, yes, Nazi Germany was using that salute. It goes back to Hail Caesar, essentially. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses in Germany were being persecuted because they refused to give that salute. Well, this particular picture is in Connecticut because at the time that this decision was held, that was the way that you saluted the flag. You'd say, I pledge allegiance to the flag and you outstretch your arm like that. And Jehovah's Witnesses believe that that was really an act of idolatry. First of all, you were swearing allegiance. Um, many faiths have a problem with um, using swear, you know, swear like instead of oath or affirm. And also uh, that it was a graven image, essentially putting something against uh, above God. Now in the first case, the, the 1940 decision, the Gabitis decision, the Supreme Court uh, upholds the mandatory flag salutes. And in fact, it's Justice Felix, Felix Frankfurter, who himself is an immigrant and or an immigrant from an immigrant's family. And he upholds, we've got to have patriotism. This is this goes to the heart of what schools are supposed to do. Remember, schools are often said to, uh, to act parents patriae in the place of the parents. And we know that the First Amendment, one, one place that it doesn't apply is to parents. And uh, many students I know are shocked to discover that. But anyway, so in 1940, when the first decision came down, it was upheld. And there was great uproar against it, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses against the decision, but there were also violence against Jehovah's Witnesses, and that's documented nationally. So finally, the Supreme Court hears the case again. World War II is, is fully on now. The U.S. is very much engaged. It's after Pearl Harbor. It's 1943 when the second case, the Barnett case, rehears the same issue. And this time, Justice Robert Jackson, who you may be familiar with, 
he will go on, he will resign from the Supreme Court to become the, excuse me, to, I believe it's take a leave from the Supreme Court uh, to be the prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials in Nazi Germany. And here he is in 1943, laying out what we believe the fundamental principle of the First Amendment, and that it applies in school settings, even when normally schools are supposed to be in the role of a parent and can't be questioned. Here's what Justice Jackson says. If there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. And he goes on to say, in fact, to make patriotism compulsory, uh, to, to hazard a belief that patriotism won't survive unless it's compulsory and forced. Uh, he said that's really a an unfortunate estimation of the appeal of our institutions to free minds. So there's the core principle and the 1943, we're starting to see, okay, yes, this applies within schools. And uh, from there, I, uh, our scholar with uh, Cato, Tom Berry is gonna uh, explain further what's developed since then. All right, shall I take it away? Yes, please take. I was going to avoid that phrase, but yeah, take it away, Tom. All right, thanks, <laughs> Linda. Tom, tell us a little bit more about how we uh, how we got from those early cases up to some of the those major student free speech cases over the the last few decades. Sure, happy to. So I think the still uh, the uh, next most important case and probably still the single most important uh, Supreme Court case on school uh, speech was Tinker versus Des Moines. Uh, in 1969. Uh, so Tinker was about a group of Iowa public school students who planned to wear black armbands on their sleeves at school to protest the Vietnam War. The school found out about the protest, sent them home, and told them they were suspended until they came back without the armbands. Uh, when their case reached the Supreme Court, the court held that the suspension violated their First Amendment rights. And in a memorable uh, turn of phrase uh, that uh, Linda foreshadowed, uh, Justice Abe Fortas wrote for the court that it can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And that absolutely uh, rested on the reasoning of, of uh, Barnett, that, that earlier case really um, set the groundwork for that fundamental uh, principle. Um, but the court also acknowledged, and this is where uh, future cases have really uh, reached their crux and reached the debate. The court acknowledged the need for affirming the comprehensive authority of the states and of school officials consistent with fundamental constitutional safeguards to prescribe and control conduct in the schools. So this court essentially described speech regulations as a collision uh, between these two values. And that notion of free speech and school discipline as competing and conflicting values has really underlied the school speech cases ever since. Uh, so how did the court balance those values in the Tinker case itself? Uh, it announced a rule that public school students may uh, express their opinions even on controversial subjects like the conflict in Vietnam if they do so without, quote, materially and substantially interfering with the requirements of appropriate discipline in the operation of the school. 
Uh, and that's the test that lower courts have been quoting uh, ever since. So applying that test to the black armband protest itself, the Tinker Court easily found the suspension was not justifi justified. There's no evidence that the armband protest had disrupted uh, the work of the school. And most importantly, the court rejected a theory that a generalized fear of potential disruption or future disruption was sufficient justification uh, to to suppress speech. Now, since Tinker, uh, the Supreme Court has carved out a few other exceptions, uh, a few other areas where schools can restrict student speech besides substantial disruption. So in 1986, the Supreme Court uh, made an exception for vulgar and lewd speech in a case called Bethel School District versus Frazier. Uh, the court upheld the punishment of a student named Matthew Frazier for giving a school assembly speech full of double entendres. And the court ruled that public school officials can teach students <clears throat> the boundaries of socially appropriate behavior, and that includes teaching students not to utter vulgar and lewd language at school. So the decision distinguished the political speech of Tinker from what it termed the sexual speech of Frazier. Uh, closely following that, in uh, two years later, in a case called Hazelwood School District versus Kuhlmeyer, uh, the court created another exception for so-called school-sponsored student speech. So this is uh, school activities like school newspapers, school plays. Uh, the court held that public school officials can censor speech in those school-sponsored uh, activities when they have a legitimate educational reason to do so. So essentially, those activities are part of the schoolwork, um, and courts have an interest in, in limiting what students say there. About 20 years after that, in 2007, the court established another exception to the Tinker Standard in a case called Morse versus Frederick about a high school student in Alaska who displayed a giant banner saying bong hits for Jesus on a public street right near his high school. And the court ruled that public school officials can prohibit student speech that they reasonably regard as advocating Ill the illegal use of drugs, even though there really wasn't likely a substantial disruption there. Uh, so then the final case I'll talk about, the most recent, and probably probably the most important since Tinker, uh, is a case called Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. That's Brandy Levy, and that was decided last year. Uh, so the student in question had taken a selfie of herself uh, raising her middle finger uh, with a vulgar caption about her cheer squad and about life in general, and she'd put it out as a snap on Snapchat. So lots of her classmates who were also on Snapchat and friends with her saw it. Also, her cheer coaches saw it, and they suspended her from the squad for a full year. So when that case got to the Supreme Court, uh, Levy wanted a categorical rule that public schools can't punish off-campus speech at all. But the Supreme Court didn't go that far. It didn't foreclose uh, application of Tinker to off-campus speech in every instance. Uh, it held that the reasons justifying uh, punishment of speech do not always, quote, disappear when a school regulates speech that takes place off campus. So the court suggested, without limiting itself to the examples offered, that some circumstances potentially calling for regulation of off-campus speech might include bullying classmates, threats aimed at teachers or students, cheating or otherwise breaking the rules, or breaches of school security devices. But then in the crux of the opinion, the court identified three features of off-campus speech that in the court's words, diminish the strength of the unique educational characteristics that might call for special First Amendment leeway to regulate speech. So in other words, make uh, make it even less likely that schools should be able to regulate speech. So that first feature is that off-campus speech normally falls within the zone of parental rather than school-related responsibility. The second is that by definition, off-campus speech includes all the speech a student utters during the full 24-hour day. 
which should lead uh, courts to be more skeptical of regulations. And the third is that schools have an interest in protecting a student's unpopular expression. So applying these guidelines to Brandy's case, the court easily found the school was not justified in punishing her for the snap. Indeed, the court suggested even if she had said the same thing on campus, it probably wouldn't have met the substantial disruption standard. So Mahanoy was notable as actually the first time since Tinker in the 60s that the Supreme Court invalidated a school's punishment of student speech. Uh, but the guidelines that the court established likely mean students speaking off campus will rarely have their speech punished. But the court's hesitancy to establish any bright line rule means it will really be up to lower courts uh, to apply the balancing test to future cases. And if we see cases that involve some of the examples like threats to classmates uh, or more serious things than, than just a vulgar uh, social media post, uh, we're likely going to see case law start to develop on how to draw those lines for off-campus speech. And I'll, I'll pause there so we have time for questions. Well, and, and just to be clear, uh, Tom, um, Morse was off campus, right? And it wasn't even a school related event, right? So can you tell us a little more about how the court in Mahanoy distinguished Morse? That's a that's a that's a good question. Morse, uh, I've, there was a lot of debate within um, about the facts of Morse and whether that was treated as an on-campus or an off-campus case. Now, my recollection is that that was the uh, Olympic torch procession right. was going by right. school, and so they were out uh, essentially on the street next to the school, and that he put it up um, essentially, sort of within view of everyone who is assembled there. Um, and I think this this is something that, to some extent, the Supreme Court could have homed in on more in terms of setting these boundaries for on-campus versus off-campus, um, because sometimes if you're all at a field trip or something, you're essentially in a similar to a classroom uh, environment, um, and even though you're not technically uh, within, within the gates. Um, so, and but I my, I my recollection of Morse, yeah, it was the is a torch rally, the Olympic torch, and they had been allowed to go. Like that's mm -hmm. right, but it wasn't a school. Thanks, Julie. And it yeah, was, it was it was school, school sanctioned. Sponsored. Go ahead, it was go ahead, Julie. It not school sponsored, but school sanctioned. The, the because the, the torch um, ceremony was going to go by the school, the students were permitted um, or even encouraged uh, to go and participate. Thanks. So I wanted to to jump in. We've we've got a sort of broad history of what we've talked about. And Tommy, you brought us up to the edge of starting to talk about some of the, uh, you might say, next horizons for thinking about future litigation or future challenges there, particularly because some of the uh, the limitations of where the ruling in Mahanoy didn't go. Uh, so my my question to to all three of you, uh, so Julie, Linda, Tommy. Uh, where do we see this going next? So what is the what is the next major horizon when it comes to thinking about student free speech cases? Where do we anticipate or where is it reasonably the case that we could see either because of vagueness in, in current rulings or changes in, in technology or cultural patterns that we can anticipate? This is where we can start to see some future cases coming. So I'm happy to go first. So Please, I, I think the significance of balancing tests is that they're always fact-driven inquiries, right? So it is specific to the facts of the particular case. So to Tommy's earlier point, how Mahanoy is going to end up applying to other students using social media with and that is outside of school, but ends up into school because there is that, that firm boundary really doesn't 
exist anymore when it comes to, to social media um, is going to depend on the specific facts of that case. So Tommy, I think you brought up a good point. So like if a student were to use social media to threaten another student or someone else in the school, then I think, you know, the balance is in favor of the school, right, punishing a student uh, for that speech. Um, and that certainly, you know, was true prior to the Mahanoy case, right? So email predates uh, social media. So if you sent a thre threatening email to another student and that email happened to be open in school, right, same kind of test would apply um, at that point. But it is fact specific. And so when you're teaching this to your students, I think it's really important to say that um, because a lot of times you say, well, this is the rule in Tinker. And the most important thing that students remember is that, uh, you know, you don't shed your constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate, which could lead you to think, well, you can never curtail student speech, but that's not what Tinker says. That's not what Mahanoy says. Um, and so um, it's figuring out when there's a reasonable likelihood that there will be a substantial disruption because of the student speech. And that really does depend on the very specific facts of the case. Yeah, I'm, I'm also sympathetic to, and thanks Julie for laying that out so clearly. I'm also sympathetic to the idea of you don't shed them, we usually think coming into the schoolhouse gate, but conversely, how far can the schoolhouse gate go into your personal life? And as the, the court said in Mahanoy, you know, students get to say things that adults could say about criticizing, whether it's in the, inside the school or in a public forum, and that at some point um, you run the risk of taking away students' basic rights to criticize. And uh, I, I was very sympathetic to that case, particularly in, in Mahanoy. Um, you know, she's, she, used an expletive that was very similar to Cohen versus California. She used a sexual expletive that the court has said, well, if you can't literally do that, then it's you know some kind of uh, speech that's protected. So, you know, one cheer <laughs> for the potential cheerleader. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one, one of the themes underlying Mahanoy is that a big difference is that in Tinker, there's the notion of, well, when you're within school, you're in particular classes. So it's more justified to say, okay, don't get up and give a political speech in the middle of algebra class, or don't give up and start talking about some hot button, you know, current events in, you know, ancient Greek class or something like that. It's that that allowed you to basically say we're not punishing you for the content of the speech it's just not the right place at the right time well off campus speech you you don't really have those concerns if someone posts the same sort of hot take on a political topic on snapchat or on facebook you know it's not in the middle of algebra class and i think there's a bigger concern there and this sort of relates to tinker never really dug into, is there a heckler's veto problem potentially if your only standard is substantial disruption? So if someone, you know, is talking about a hot button issue, people can get offended. We've seen this, we see this all the time today. People post things on social media that that people, others are feel strongly offended um, by. And if you don't have any sort of standard of reasonableness of reaction, I think the court 
and and people should be very concerned of the notion that you can't get to a point where students can just say, I saw this political thing posted by my classmate on Facebook and it deeply wounded me. And I, you know, I, I don't want to come to class anymore because I'm I'm so upset by that. That that starts to turn into a heckler's veto um, that that can really put a crimp into students who are, you know, coming into their own as as thinking about political issues for the first time and naturally are going to be wanting to share them on social media as young people like to. Well, and, and the reminder is also that no person, adult, youth, whatever, is protected with uh, inciting violence. And that's an established standard. My concern, and I'm sympathetic to the burdens that teachers and educators and principals face every day and the threats to, not the threats to student harm, the realities of student harm. And part of what I also want to encourage students is, yes, you have First Amendment rights and you also have responsibilities under that. And you cannot, if you know a classmate is uh, dangerous or threatening or something like that, don't wait for the school to find it out. You have a responsibility to report that. And, um, I, I, you know, it, it's like on one hand, the school is parents patriae theoretically, but in reality, they can't be in that and they, then they shouldn't be expected to. Um, so that's my concern too, is the more that schools try to do, the more the burden is on them to do more. And um, it's all of our responsibility to protect against violence that's somehow using speech as a cover. I'd like to see more from the court in helping better understand what's meant by substantial disruption, because um, Tommy and Linda, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually don't think any of the cases actually resulted in any kind of meaningful disruption uh, to the school, to the operations of the school. Um, and so I think that's a, an area where you could get more clarity potentially um, is, you know, what, what meets that burden of substantial disruption, right? So the inability to um, keep a classroom in order, um, obviously inciting to violence would fall within that um, category. You could think of a couple of hypothetical um, scenarios, but this idea, you know, it, there's some, there's some, there's some text and tinker about this, about um, disrupting the orderly functioning of a school. Well, that's actually quite broad, right? What does that mean? Um, and there's been, I think, less attention uh, to that language. And I and it could be something now with these social media cases um, where, where we dive into that a little bit more. Well, and to footnote that, um, you know, I have had multiple complaints from students and teachers that within their school, students are still being punished for refusing to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, we all know that's unconstitutional. We all know they shouldn't be doing it. But students are being coerced to say the Pledge of Allegiance. So, you know, um, to help draw that standard in terms of disrupting classroom, we also have to realize that there's certain First Amendment principles that are supposed to be written in stone, like saluting the flag, and uh, they aren't being abided by. I didn't help you, Julie, I'm sorry, but I, <laughs> I wanted to establish the floor in that and mm -hmm. say, you know what, there are gaping holes in what's supposed to be the floor. 
So I wanted to I want to encourage first our, our participants. I know you've started to put some questions in the chat. Let's get a few more of those going. So we want to turn to your questions as the the bulk of what we do moving forward. Uh, but I had two more that I wanted to to direct the conversation in. First is a, a sort of very simple one that I think we it's easy to take for granted in this conversation. But could one of you please just briefly explain some of the relevant distinctions between students who are attending uh, public schools? versus ah. students who are private or independent schools and how some of that changes the relevant conversation that we're having. State action, it changes it totally. I mean, the First Amendment limit, limits government and its agents. It doesn't limit private parties. So uh, fundamentally, a private school um, is a, an association that is also protected under the First Amendment from interference by the state but private schools can, can set whatever codes they want to and the First Amendment doesn't apply. I, I'm expecting an amen from, from Julia and Tommy on that one, right? You know, that, yeah. that's the other big principle that so many people don't understand. You don't have a First Amendment right against your employer unless that employer is, a, is the government. And uh, you do also, not directly related, but you do also, in, in even earlier cases established, you do always have the right to go to a, a private school, not necessarily the right to uh, get the funding for it. Society of Sisters, right? Yep. Yep. So if so, that is, at the very least, you do have a constitutional right to exit uh, if, if, the, if the public school is, you know, either the curriculum or the way it's being enforced is not acceptable to students. They always have, in theory at least, um, the right to attend the school right. of their choice. But you don't have the right to make the government pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> At least not yet, right? We'll see. We'll see where some of this goes. Uh, the the next question I want to take us into, I think, can be uh, dangerously opening up a fairly large can of worms. But I think it's an important one for us to start to address. And what I'd love to do is talk just a little bit, building off of what you were just talking about, about some of the ways in which... Uh, teachers have or don't have speech rights in their capacity as educators. So thinking about some of the unique circumstances that educators themselves find themselves in as employees of a, a government body, and therefore both at the same time employees, but also the role that the government plays in that position, what they can and what they can't do, and some of the unique challenges in that space. So a lot that we could talk about there, but I just wanted to throw it open to, to each of you to share just a, a few general thoughts. What are some of the ways in which teachers do have those speech rights? What are some of the ways they don't? And what are some of the complications that uh, perhaps haven't been resolved by court cases up to this point? So I think we can probably start with the ways in which they don't, uh, because there's a 2006 case, Supreme Court case called Garcetti um, that basically said that public uh, employees generally don't have First Amendment rights when it comes to their on-the-job speech. Um, that case had to do with a, a public prosecutor, did not have to do um, with public teacher, public school teachers um, in particular, although it's been applied um, some lower uh, court level to um, public school teachers. And so um, what this means uh, is that when you are in the classroom as a public school teacher doing your job, uh, your, you know, ability to speak freely can be limited by your employer, the school, which is also the government. Um, and so um, I think that is a challenge. 
um, for some public school teachers, that reality, um, the uh, a bunch of um, groups speaking on behalf of public school teachers um, in a friend of the quarter amicus brief um, spoke out in saying uh, you really should give public employees First Amendment rights uh, for on-the-job speech. They were particularly concerned about K through 12 educators. I think it's important to note that K through 12 educators are distinguished from college educators who are granted broader um, academic freedom. Um, because the students are adults. They are and have their own, excuse me for jumping in, Julie. But... No, no, that's okay. No, please always jump in. It's a conversation. Um, so um, that I think is sort of the, uh, but that is where we are uh, in, in terms of the Supreme Court. Um, 2006 wasn't that long ago. Um, it's conceivable, right? Uh, a court would reconsider that, but I, I tend to doubt it. You'd have to have a really good case um, to go to the court for that. Well, and it started remembering the McCarthy era where teachers were required to swear lo loyalty oaths. And I can't remember the name of the case. I want to say it's the Smith case, but, you know, it started from there. Now, other things from the McCarthy era have since been overturned and overruled. Um, the laws that you may be referring to or that I'd certainly like to raise, uh, I believe they're called divisive concepts laws, um, because some of my classmates in law school were pioneers in the critical legal studies theory. That's how I tend to refer to them. In fact, there was a um, New Yorker article where the gentleman that uh, kind of, well, as he said, he, um, he um, I'm, I'm quoting now, um, he said that critical race theory, you know, made the perfect scapegoat in terms of his own political promotion of his own ideas. And he took it nationally, a gentleman named Christopher Rufo. And so suddenly across the entire country, there's been this concern about these so-called divisive concepts, which include um, what may, many teachers and students and myself have thought of an established part of the curriculum. I've had teacher reach out to me after one of these laws was considered and there was a public meeting about it and said, I was planning to teach about Rosa Parks tomorrow. Can I still do that? Um, and I don't know what she can do as a legal matter, but the reality is, is that teachers are under so much pressure um, to conform to whatever these hot button uh, political issues are that, you know, it does create what's traditionally known as a chilling effect and not just on the teachers themselves, but what the students can learn. And uh, I know those laws are being challenged in various states. And Julie may be right that the court won't reconsider. I don't know. I mean, this is where uh, I wish for Justice Scalia because he was a really good First Amendment, per whatever you thought on his other decisions. I mean, he struck down the flag burning law um, that was supposed to outlaw flag burning. So he, he, he was really good on a lot of First Amendment issues in terms of freedom of expression. And I, I'm not sure where today's court will come down on that. Um, so I did want to touch on um, the legal challenges um, because um, 
most of them don't have to do with the free speech rights of teachers necessarily, right? So a lot of these laws are being challenged on vagueness grounds um, for the reasons that Linda just mentioned, which is um, if I can't teach divisive concepts about race and I could be fined or I could be, um, I think in New Hampshire, you can, um, uh, basically um, have your board license uh, revoked, um, which would prevent you from teaching even outside of your school. Um, and um, in, in other places, you know, be fired or fined or whatever. And so um, do I know whether or not I can teach about Rosa Parks under really broad um, language? So some of these things are being, are being um, challenged for vagueness. Um, there are a few cases where it's actually being challenged under the um, free speech rights of students to receive right. certain information, right? Um, and then um, uh, there's another legal theory that I, I had in my head and is escaping me now. But oh, anyway, I think uh, maybe, but yeah, I think, but I, I think the the vagueness argument yeah. in my mind is probably the most likely to be um, successful. Oh, you know what I'm thinking about in Arizona. Um, they actually successfully overturned uh, the law there um, on a process issue specific to the Arizona the state constitution. Of the law, right? That it didn't it didn't tell really what the law was about. Was that what you're thinking of? Right. So that's more of a uh, process issue, process right? issue right. that didn't go to the substance of that. But anyway, these issues are present for teachers now. They're actively working their way through the legal system. It's possible um, that this would end up before the court, but I think they would probably dispose of it on vagueness grounds, in which case you wouldn't get a well, consideration of Garcetti for public school teachers. And, and Julie, you're you're a more, much more recent graduate of law school than, than I am. But back in the day when I was, we, we would often be taught about that the vagueness argument was in fact related to the, the free speech argument. Did, uh, did my con law professors lead me astray on that? Uh, you can, um, but I think this is actually, these challenges are vagueness under the 14th Amendment. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, I know there's a, uh, so, sorry, sorry, we're about to go deep in the weeds, so I'm going to reel myself back in. <laughs> so, uh, that's a great opportunity. Well, we were let's, talking let's... about criminal versus civil standards. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just add one thing real please, quickly please. that uh, the Supreme Court did discuss Garcetti uh, in a case last term called Kennedy versus Bremerton schools, the the school coach, high school football coach prayer mm -hmm. case about whether that was within the scope of his duties or not. I don't think anyone asked to overturn Garcetti, so we can't necessarily take that as an indication about whether they'd reconsider it. All the parties basically just argued within that framework. Um, and the Supreme Court just applied it, but the no, there wasn't any indication there that the Supreme Court considered reapplying it. But that case kind of showed the interesting difficulties, which is that um, I th uh, the dissent strongly argued that if you go too far oh, yeah. in allowing teacher speech, uh, you risk uh, the rights of the students. Essentially, that if a, a coach or a teacher is allowed to proselytize, you know, the second the bell rings, the students still will see them as an authority figure. And so the dissent at least said there shouldn't be such a bright line between 2, 2.59 and 3 p.m. about what the teacher can say to you in terms of has the bell rung or not. Or 7.30 at the 50-yard line when mm -hmm. you're a coach and all those players are being, um, they're responsible directly to you. 
So I want to pivot our conversation to some of the, the questions that have come in from the teachers. Lots of really interesting ones here, and I think some some fun, challenging ones. So I wanted to start with a question from uh, Serge Danielson-Francois, who asks, uh, would student use of preferred pronouns in a class Zoom be an exercise of First Amendment speech rights? Would considerations of privacy and personhood potentially apply in that situation as well? Uh, anyone want to take a stab at responding to uh, Serge's question? Also, let me just very briefly pause something I meant to mention at the top of this. Despite the fact that we have many excellent uh, attorneys on the call, nothing that we're talking about tonight should be construed in any way as actually legal advice for your particular circumstances. So this is more theoretical conversations about where things are. And if you need legal advice, please turn to an attorney. But looking to Serge's question, uh, use of preferred pronouns in a Zoom class is that an exercise of First Amendment speech rights? What what would be some of the interesting challenges that might come up in a circumstance like that? So I'm assuming the student is voluntarily putting their preferred pronouns. So um, I would. It's a question of whether the teacher has to, must comply, and what if they get it wrong or whatever like that, right? I, I think that's where where he's getting at. I mean, there it's sort of two questions. Yeah, one is. Do students have the right to be allowed to say what their preferred pronouns are? And then, as Linda said, a second question is: Does it, can a teacher be required to sort of respect or, or use those same ones that the student requests? And I know at least at one public university, there has been litigation on that very question about the whether the professor has to comply. There is a, a school that had a policy that professors have to use preferred pronouns, and a professor sued, basically saying that this was compelled speech. Um, against him. And I believe at last I followed that, the Sixth Circuit actually ruled for the professor, saying that because this is sort of has ideological components to it, because it's a matter of public debate, you know, issues of gender identity, uh, that the professor had a had a First Amendment right if he chose to to decline to use preferred pronouns um, and to sort of send a message. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the case of a K through 12 teacher, it would probably um, depend on whether or not the state had um, passed any legislation directly related to this requiring teachers uh, to recognize the preferred pronouns per name um, or if there was a school policy uh, in place. And possibly a policy to inform parents. That's been the other issue of, of do parents have a, a parental right to be informed that their child is um, using different pronouns, whatever that might may or may not imply. Uh, thank you, Serge, for what proves to be a challenging and interesting question. I wanted to jump up to a question from early on. Mark Robinson asked something that I think is a very interesting one for the, the broader scope of our conversation. He writes, uh, when I was first hired in Kansas in the 90s, I had to sign a loyalty oath. I know more recently, some teachers are required to affirm things like diversity statements. Where do these kinds of compelled statements of opinions fit with the court rulings? Uh, so for teachers and their speech and some of those circumstances around there, particularly then in a public school setting, where would these kinds of things fall? Yeah, I mean, I'll start just this is this gets to a very, very tricky and difficult distinction between essentially things sort of relevant to the operation of the school versus compelled speech on ideological questions. And I think diversity statements, uh, it, it really can often get down to what is the nitty gritty of what is it that you're actually 
being compelled to, to do? And is it about speech or is it about conduct also? So if it's, uh, so sometimes it's more of just a statement of, I will not, you know, discriminate on the basis of race, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially those I think plausibly fall into job requirements, essentially saying that there is conduct you have to do to be a good, acceptable teacher. Um, it gets trickier if it verges into what some would consider ideological, you know, starting to, forcing you to express a position on what might be a contested debate about policy matters, you know, equity versus equality, you know, is equal treatment or equal outcomes more important, um, things that get into ideological debates. And I think those are, when you start to verge onto those, you start to have a stronger case um, that it that it may be compelled speech and it may be closer to the, the oath type cases. Yeah, at, at the same time, we know that intersex children uh, or a, re a biological reality. There's estimations that uh, there are more people who are actually born with some combination. I'm not saying this applies to all trans kids, but saying that the biological fact that there are children born with some mixture of chromosomes, sometimes genitalia of different sexes, that it's a biological statistic that they're as common as redheads. And at some point, um, we acknowledge that. That's, that's just a biological fact. And at some point, we can't exclude that reality from the schoolhouse gate either. Um, it's a fact. I did, um, not having to do with the, um, the, the loyalty oath in particular, or like sort of now these DEI, um, statements, I do think it's important to note though that while um, the school um, or the state can um, really regulate what a teacher says within the classroom in teaching the curriculum, right, which is also the standards are determined by the state, um, teachers do still have free speech rights to criticize their employer outside of the classroom not in the teaching of the curriculum. And I do think that that's a really important um, distinction. Um, and so any educators who have concerns about um, having to sign on to any statement or have concerns about the application of these laws in the classroom, you do in fact have a free speech right to go to your school board meeting um, or you know, uh, send a, a letter to your school principal or your governor or whomever um, criticizing these laws if you think that they're uh, uh, unsupportable. Um, and uh, by the same token, if you're supportive of them, you can do that too. So I wanted to jump to a question from uh, Lottie Almonte, who asks about social media and bullying. So she says, social media bullying is extremely disruptive in the school community. Are there any laws to protect K-12 constituents from the social media bullying and harassment? Well, I think another way of getting that same question, uh, as we start to see some of the unique ways in which social media and harassment are involved in the lives of young people, where does that spill over into areas where government action can happen? Or where is there the possibility of restrictions on speech as a result of those kinds of things? We've talked about incitement to violence, but where's where's that line? Where are some of the things that students can or can't do when it comes to the way they engage with each other, uh, either as it directly relates to the schooling and their interaction with classmates or 
perhaps in those circumstances, sitting just outside of that school scenario, getting a little bit more like some of what was coming up in the, the Mahanoi case. So complicated question, thinking about bullying and harassment and how that impacts uh, speech rights. Uh, I don't know who wants to take a first stab at that one, but uh, what do you guys think? I'd probably say harassment maybe is a little bit easier just because if you were to meet the definition of harassment, you could get law enforcement uh, potentially involved in that, right? Um, if you're harassing a particular student or a group of students, then I think it's probably a little bit more straightforward for the school to intervene. Um, I think bullying is um, a little bit harder to define. Um, although I'm sure schools have codes of conduct uh, that do in fact define what bullying means. But again, I think that would be a fact specific uh, inquiry to see what would meet um, both in the in the case of harassment and also in terms of bullying if it met um, that uh, that standard. And um, you know, you do have to look at um, uh, you know, social media, because that's really where a lot of these students are interacting, um, probably more so on social media than yeah, in the classroom. They're probably tweeting at each other while they're sitting in class um, in, in many instances, right? Rather than the, the these young generations, like they prefer to talk uh, through third-party intermediaries, <laughs> uh, owned in, you know, run in Silicon Valley than they do face-to-face. I'll, I'll just add um, one, one point on this theme. Uh, I, I, Cato and I supported the, um, Ma, you know, Brandy Levy in, in Mahanoy. We, in we filed a brief, you know, in general saying, supporting the arguments that uh, schools in general should not extend their uh, authority to off-campus speech. But I'll admit one of the arguments in favor of that, that, that others made, I wasn't crazy about is that, well, if, if schools don't have to worry about off-campus speech, because if it raises to the level of real harassment, then that's a criminal law issue. So you just bring, you can bring the police in instead of schools. And I feel like um, there may be a role, again, if we're just talking about what's the best case scenario and not just going, sort of escalating things farther than they have to be, or maybe lesser of two evils is a better way to put it. I'd rather have schools um, dealing with things at that borderline between bullying and harassment rather than the only question being uh should this become a criminal matter and get the police involved and get the criminal justice involved with you know 16 17 or 18 year olds um and, so and I, priorities. I priorities they're not really frankly you know um outside the school setting i mean women are still dying because they can't get effective orders against harassment and mm -hmm. um you know that's a reality of law enforcement mm -hmm. is the entire spectrum that they're faced with. You're muted, Alan. Couldn't hear you. Click just off to the side of it. I thought I had it. I missed it. Uh, I'm going to get it one of these days. Uh, Cynthia asked a question, uh, and she and I both forget the name of the specific case, but there was a, a recent scenario where a student had wanted for uh, religious reasons to wear a feather as part of her graduation cap. I don't know if you guys recall the specific case, but some uh, interesting challenges around whether or not there's permissibility for her to be able to express that way. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name case. I was just reading about it earlier today, but uh, 
Walden versus Cynthia writes. I don't know if that rings a bell, but if someone could share just a little bit about the case to the extent that you recall it and some of the, the relevant facts at play. For K through 12 public school. So I'm not familiar with the case, so can't comment uh, on it, unfortunately. But Cynthia, I will look it up before we have lunch, um, and I will get back to you with a good analysis on it. <laughs> Style Custom of jewelry. That is your best resource. Style of jewelry. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure, but I'm sure it is. Um, I'll sing this song uh, until I'm blue in the face, but I'm sure it has to do with the specific facts of that case before they came to. So. Uh, then we'll pivot then. Kelly Young-Raymore asks a, a question. Do you have protection under the First Amendment to use offensive language toward other students and staff? Language that doesn't rise to the level of bullying, like using uh, a homophobic slur, perhaps. And that doesn't rise to the level of bullying if it's against a student that Yeah, to, so to, to rephrase the, the question, if one student is engaging in speech that is problematic, but well, I guess another way of putting it is if you all had to have a point of view on where the line was on what creates student speech rising to the level of being substantially disruptive, sort of the, the broader question that you were positing earlier that the court didn't quite address of when does it actually get to that level of being disruptive? What does that look like? Is it uh, aggressive conversation or using harmful language toward other students? Does it have to cause some kind of physical outburst in the classroom? That is, if we were to start to parse where we could draw that line of getting to uh, substantially disruptive, what might that look like? So Julie, now you get to answer the question you posed. Yeah, so look, so I, so I think if you're, I think if you use the slur in uh, the context of um, trying to harm someone, right? So you're you're having an argument, um, or you're using it um, again to like provoke or incite um, violence or further sort of verbal assault. I would say um, the school that rises to the level of a reasonable likelihood of a substantial disruption, um, and therefore I think the school could step in. If on the other hand you're using the slur to make um, a political point, right? Um, or you use it in um, talking about, uh, I don't know, free speech in schools. Mm. And is this something that would be forbidden? Then I think there it, you're using the slur in a, in a um, meaningfully different way. And I think that the calculus would be different mm -hmm. um, for whether or not you could say that would reasonably lead to a substantial disruption. Now, do I think it could bother students? Yes, I do think it could bother um, other students. Perhaps it may even depend on the composition of the classroom as to whether or not um, there's a reasonable likelihood of a substantial um, disruption. But um, I do think there's a distinction between harassing, verbally assaulting someone with a slur and, and using it in a more academic way, which people right. do do, and it still is, can be perceived as offensive. On the other hand, remember Frazier was talking about what is socially appropriate. So I think there's a realm of saying, um, 
I hear about the academic discussion. Um, still, I think more people, when they're having academic discussions, would tend to say N-word versus what the N-word stands for. Now, whether or not you can be criminally punished or whatever, that's another thing we're talking about within the school setting. And I think Frazier goes beyond sex, uh, that we're encouraging social norms as in civility within the Sphere Institute. And it's just not civil to use those kinds of offensive terms if you don't have to. Um, and I think that's an appropriate social boundary to affirm. I'll, I'll just add on top of that, um, for pretty much all the cases we've talked to, the court has, has in general limited them to K-12 as opposed to higher education. Yeah, but I, I think Frazier, perhaps of all of them, the Frazier the most, I think, is clearly limited to K to 12 in terms of its reasoning and its notions of sort of molding uh, young adolescents and giving them proper bounds of behavior. So when these issues come up, you know, quoting slurs verbatim because they're in a source, um, I think that's that's one where if there is any justification for punishing that at the high school level, uh, it, in particular, that falls away as, as people become adults at the public college or, or public law schools. Great. Um, which are areas where these these controversies have arisen about exactly this, professors reading slurs or other uh, offensive words verbatim from, from source material. Well, and when the professor, uh, could it be considered part of a pattern of harassment? And that, uh, having dealt with multiple law professors myself, um, it, I, I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, sure. Uh, so Serge has hopefully found the case that we could not recall earlier. It is Wallen v. Dysart School District, uh, W-A-L-N versus D-Y-S-A-R-T. So if you wanted to look that up, he's got a, a link there in the in the chat for you all. Interesting case that was just revived. Uh, with that, we've hit sort of the, the time limit for our first part of the conversation. I wanted to thank Tommy, Julie, and Linda for the excellent conversation. I know we didn't quite get to all of the questions that were in the chat. Thank you all for putting them in there. What we want to do now is pivot a conversation toward taking a look at the fantastic resource that Linda and Julie and others have put together called Constitution Explained. Talk a little bit about what it is, show an example of some of that, and then some of the ways in which it can be helpful for you all as you're thinking about not only teaching Bill of Rights Day this week, but as you continue to incorporate the Constitution in your classroom over the coming months. Uh, Julie, Linda, let me hand it over to the two of you. And again, Tommy, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate having you here tonight. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Tommy. Um, so I think it would be great to start by playing uh, the video on freedom of expression, which does not touch specifically on student speech, but we're talking about the First Amendment today, and so it feels appropriate to play it. They're short videos, the Constitution explained, um, all two to three minutes, um, and they were developed by uh, Linda, um, myself, the team at iCivics, um, Christopher Riano, um, and his team at the Center for Civic Education. They're a wonderful teaching and learning resource, um, and we want to play the video, and then we'll talk a little bit about how the series came into being and how you can use the series more broadly for Bill of Rights Day and then really all of constitutional learning throughout the year. Oh, and we can't hear it. Can't hear. This, sorry, we had this issue during the sound test too. 
Sorry, guys. We'll go ahead and get this sorted out. Just give us one second to pull it up. Julie, while we're working on it, uh, can you briefly share the the origin of the Constitution Explained series? Where where did it come from, and what what's the the broader idea behind uh, the effort? Sure. Can I just ask that we stop screen sharing um, while we get that figured out, so people can see us while we talk, and then we'll play the video a little bit later. Thank you. Um, oh, froze for a second there. Um, so the origins of the project um, are uh, that um, the Center for Civic Education and iCivics um, knew that we wanted to do a video project together on the Constitution. We sort of scoured the internet and looked at all of the um, videos available about the Constitution. And with all due respect to the other people who have produced those videos, they're all really long. <laughs> they all have talking heads um, on them. Um, even the ones with U.S. Supreme Court justices, which I personally and I know Linda and Christopher all find really interesting and engaging, probably are less engaging to our target audience, which is um, K through 12 students, but primarily uh, students in grades six through 12. Um, but we also, uh, in thinking about producing this, um, wanted to do something that would be broadly appealing. Now, our first idea when we came together was, could we create um, a number of TikTok style videos um, that would take you all the way through the constitution? Well, when we started dividing up the constitution that way, um, we were talking about like 150 plus TikTok videos. Um, and that sounded like a lot of creative energy to make each of those really compelling. So um, we shelved that and we said, could we do like snackable two to three minute videos? We want them to be animated um, and just as a really good entry point on the constitution. And that's how the constitution explained um, was born. So it's 35 videos in total. Um, when we were thinking about um, who would help us bring this to light. Um, I know all of you are Linda Monk fans, so are we. we I said, oh, well, there's only one person who can do this, um, who knows how to write to our target, target audience and can do it in, I think, two to three minutes per video, and that's Linda. Um, and Linda very graciously agreed um, to be um, an essential part of this project and um, really take on the uh, the lion's share of the script writing. She did most of this, all of the script writing. And then, you know, we came in and, and commented and, and helped to bring that um, into video formation. And then Linda really got into it and she was like full into video production mode um, with us um, and really helped us with the visuals and the music and everything. So it was truly a collaboration between our organizations and Linda um, to, to bring this to light. And I'm seeing from Alan that with that setup, I'm gonna let Linda get a word in um, and then we'll pivot over to, to seeing uh, the video. Well, um, I wanna say that Julie found the academic research that verified that in fact, the shorter videos have a greater educational impact. So she had that rationale going into it. And I will say that I would not have taken on this project with anybody else except Julie Silverbrook, because it was kind of like, you want me to do what and when and how and what? 
And the deeper I got into it, the deeper I got into it. And so at some point, you know, Julie and I just had this kind of pact and multiple hours, all times of day or night. And she's raising a young child on top of all that. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So I'm very grateful. It was my first time writing what eventually wound up to be a feature motion picture down off of that, but I wouldn't have even tried it with anybody besides Julie Silverberg. So yeah, we learned pretty early on there was a reason why no one had done the short form videos before. It was really a challenge, but we did it. We did it over the course of a summer um, and the the videos have been played I, I think um over 80,000 times since they launched um right around constitution day so they're already really popular maybe some of you have seen them if you haven't you're about to see one so yeah. with that alan i'll let your tech team go ahead and play this one on freedom of expression Today, news and opinion are available 24-7 around the world, with barely a moment to think before something else happens. Through the internet, we become our own printing press, music studio, and movie producer, broadcasting our views to the world. Yet governments still try to control their people and prevent them from expressing their views. This process is known as censorship, and it is the reason the First Amendment protects freedom of speech and of the press. Together, they are known as freedom of expression, Self-government would not be possible without freedom of speech and the press. Citizens need to share facts and opinions to hold their government accountable. Otherwise, we the people cannot form a more perfect union because we won't know what to fix. But what if the government is trying to prevent the exchange of ideas or hide information from the public? When America was still a British colony, it was a crime to criticize the government, and truth was no defense. In fact, the law said that truthful criticism was more likely to upset people and hurt the government. But in 1735, a German printer in New York named John Peter Zanger was found innocent of such charges because an American jury believed he published the truth. What if people say or publish things that aren't true about the government or their fellow Americans? People have the right to be wrong when criticizing public officials. But if they spread known falsehoods to hurt other people, that is called defamation. Other times speech can be punished are when it directly leads to violence or reveals military secrets in wartime. On the other hand, the First Amendment protects ideas we don't like. The government can't punish hate speech about certain groups, for example, unless it involves illegal action. We don't trust the government to choose between good and bad ideas. Under the First Amendment, the best way to oppose bad ideas is with more speech that supports good ideas. Why do you think the First Amendment protects freedom for unpopular opinions? And Sephora at Kohl's is the perfect place to start shopping because you can... Yeah, the, ad is, the ad is not part of the video. That's just because it was uh, playing through a YouTube um, library. So um, the video series goes through the entire Bill of Rights since we're talking about Bill of Rights Day. So it's a wonderful resource for Bill of Rights Day, but it, it also goes through really every major section um, of the Constitution. So it's a wonderful resource. 
um, as you teach that in your classroom. So um, we always talk about Constitution Day, Bill of Rights Day being really important civic moments, but it's the other um, 363 days of the year that you have to keep doing that learning. And the videos are just a really fun um, and um, you know, low, like low cost way, right? It's only two to three minutes of your life um, to dive in. It's a great entry point um, and students seem to really uh, enjoy them. And I will just say in general, the field, other organizations in the field are really excited about the videos because they are so different than what's historically been offered um, in this space. So we hope you guys will take a look through um, both in celebration of Bill of Rights Day, um, but just in terms of your own professional development um, and share them with your students as well. And, and they're really designed for family viewing too. So, um, you know, there, there are three videos on the First Amendment, et cetera. You can, um, there, there's good charts both on the Center for Civic Ed side and iCivics where you can pick and choose from the menu that you want. Um, the, the Civil Rights Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th, I think are really great. Um, I, actually, I think all of them are great. I, I just have to say that I'm really, really proud of my books. Uh, and they represent a, a lifetime as a constitutional scholar. But I honestly think this video series is going to have a greater impact. And um, it just, I, I just, I just. Now you all heard that, right? When I quote Linda on that later about this video series. But buy my books, buy my books. Still yeah. buy your books. But seriously, it it just, um, we, we all worked uh to come up with engaging uh, visuals. Julie, in fact, I think was really, she, she has such a visual uh, imagination and I could write the scripts and everything, but to translate that into three minutes on screen animation, that is hard. And, um, and then, and she's the one who was able to develop the intro music. And then I, um, Miss Senior Scho Constitutional Scholar said, you know what, this really needs hip hop themes. This is what it really is. And so I went on the little, free, the site where you can do that and, and I scored, everybody liked it. I was so happy. So when you hear, particularly like um, on the Constitutional Convention one, oh, and also on the president, um, Julie, remind me, what's the, anyway, the president, the job description. I mean, that, that, uh, that video has some swagger, if you know what I mean. I mean, it is good with the music too. They got so, when I said Linda, so when I said Linda got involved in all aspects of video production, I was not kidding. And all aspects of video production were improved by her involvement and level of commitment. So just a really fun project. Yeah. Um, and I think the through line in the series are, are two themes that come from the preamble. So it's we the people, right? Um, what does that mean? Um, and how has that expanded over American history and to form a more, more perfect union? So those are the through lines you'll, you'll see throughout the entire series. And it's why um, both because it's the start of the Constitution, um, but because it's also its mission statement, why we start with the preamble and it really tees um, that up. So it, it is wonderful. Um, really, if you, if you can only watch one uh, and promote it to families and stuff like that, do the one on the preamble, We the People. 
that 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 one just knocks it out of the park. Um, I'm seeing some questions, which I'll just kind of reply okay, to ahead. in in real time. So, um, Mandy, you mentioned um, this is great for students with limited English, um, and yes, we do have. Um, the closed captioning and the transcripts. I will also say that we are actively working um, to uh, secure funding to get the videos um, translated into uh, Spanish. Um, for That's a commitment we have at iCivics. I think it would be a really great um, service um, to Nosotros the field. El Pueblo. <laughs> we are, yeah, we are working, actively working on that. Um, and so uh, stay tuned. Uh, hopefully I'll have um, an update um, on that. And then I guess, uh, there, Mark, you have a question about whether or not the 18th and 21st Amendment in, are in there. Of course, how could you, it not be <laughs> uh, in there, um, both having to do uh, with the specifics of it um, and um, also the, the um, you know, rat, the passage and then repeal um, of an amendment, sort of the uniqueness of that. Um, where can you access? is in there even if they don't necessarily have their own separate video, you know, we group some together, but everyone is in there. Serge, thanks for dropping the link. So it's available on iCivics. It's also available on the Center for Civic Education's website. And then it's available if you just search for it on YouTube or Google. So the goal was to get as many eyeballs on this as possible. I so appreciate that it's the middle of December and it's yes. after 8.30. And I know we had to, we we could go all the way to nine. And if you guys have questions, we'll go all the way to nine. But if not, I'm really happy yeah. this close to the holiday season <laughs> uh, to, to let you all free. Now, I will say, I do just want to preview a resource for all of you because we were talking about student speech cases. Um, and Linda is involved in this one too. Um, we're working on a new interactive um, called Supreme Justice. We're still about a year out from release of this, um, and it uh, focuses on student speech cases. So um, stay tuned. iCivics has some really exciting stuff coming up on student speech um, in terms of new resources, um, and so just keep an eye out for that toward the end of 2023, early 2024. With that, I'll just say happy Bill of Rights Day. It's such a pleasure to be with amazing teachers. Cato always does a really wonderful job. Um, with these programs. And if you have any follow-up questions, um, you can find us on Twitter and you can email us. Um, I think we both have either at the iCivics website, you'll find mine and at Linda's website, you'll find her email address. So they're both publicly available. Julie, Linda, thank you guys so much for the conversation tonight and sharing that resource for us. I know that it will be something that is widely used among both the educators here tonight and then more broadly in the community. Uh, Last thing that I wanted to say, in addition to thanking you all so much for coming to the conversation this evening, uh, is to just very briefly encourage you to continue what you've been doing. And what I mean by that is, this is a fantastic group of educators who are doing incredible things to advance the causes of free speech, and civil discourse, overcoming polarization, really equipping the next generation of students with that understanding of the Constitution and an understanding of what it means to be a productive, contributing member of their community and society. Thank you for all of that. I know it can be challenging as the, uh, well, as the year winds down, especially to the, the holiday break, you're going to make it. You're almost there. Um, give you some rest, get the, the rest that you deserve. Uh, and finally, I wanted to put in just a very brief plug. Uh, come join us this summer for Sphere Summit. 
Uh, for those of you who have not yet applied, we welcome your application. We want you to come spend days with us in Washington, D.C., talking about all of these issues, all these most challenging conversations. And we'll have fantastic scholars like Linda and Julie and Tommy joining us there for those conversations on everything under the sun, whatever you happen to be disagreeing about or wherever your students are working. Yeah, whatever up. you happen to be disagreeing about. There Absolutely. <laughs> all of it. All of it. Uh, so love you all. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for the conversation. Uh, as a final note, we'll be sharing out professional development certificates, as well as sending out a copy of the video to you and anyone who couldn't make it tonight in the coming weeks. Hopefully, we'll get it in time before the break itself ends. Uh, but with that, thank you for coming tonight. Have a fantastic evening and enjoy the rest of your semester.